in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. This morning we're going to finish up our little short Christmas sermon series called The Reason for the Season. And so just a quick review. Uh, Two weeks ago, we did uh, The Reason for the Season is Christmas gives us a new nature. And we said that we needed a new nature because we were uh, depraved, we were dead, and we were doomed. But Christ descended to give us a new nature, a new life. And then we followed that up this uh, last week with the reason for the season is that Christmas gives us a new name. Uh, we get a new identity, and that new identity informs us of who we are, and it instructs us in how we should live. And so today we come to uh, the third sermon of the reason for the season is that Christmas gives us a new neighbor. Now, r- remember what we have, where we started two weeks ago, is that uh, though it is okay to have a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or a yard sign that says Jesus is the reason for the season, that's uh, really not a totally accurate statement, okay? Sin is the reason for the season. Remember that? We saw that in Matthew, right? Matthew chapter 1. Sin is the reason for the season. But here's the more accurate, accurate way to say that. Sin is the reason for the season, and Jesus is the response to the season. Sin is the reason for the season, but Jesus is the response. Because if sin is the cause of Christmas, Jesus is the response of Christmas. Had there been no sin, there would would never be a need for a Savior. And so, because of Christmas, we have a new nature. We're changed. We're new. That gives us a new name. We now have a new identity. That identity informs us of who we are, and it instructs us in how to live. And that's where the neighbor comes in today. So we, we need to be rescued from our sin. That's our new nature. We need to be given a, a, a mission in life. That's our new name. We're brought into this family, and like we said last week, you know, I named off the Kennedys. What are they known for? Politics. We, you're brought into this family, and this family's name carries with it an expectation, a purpose. And today we find out that purpose in more depth. You see, Christmas gives us a new neighbor. If you'll look, beginning of verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, it's going to be a familiar story. Not necessarily one you would read at Christmas, but nonetheless... Very fitting for Christmas. Beginning in verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, watch this, you might want to underline this in the Bible, because this is us. 
Anytime Jesus starts probing around in our life, this is often our response. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Here's a very important truth for us to remember this morning about Christmas. Christmas redefines our relationships. Christmas redefines our relationships. You see, this word neighbor in that is brought up by Jesus and by the lawyer, it's a concept that's apparently limited in the Old Testament period and late Judaism, now listen, to one one's fellow Israelite or a member of the covenant and extended by Jesus to include anyone encountered in life. So the Israelites had a very narrow definition of who neighbor was. That would be another Israelite or someone who was a part of the covenant of God. But here's what Jesus does. Jesus expands that definition to include anyone you encountered in life. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. It'll be on the screen. You might just want to write this down for future reference. This is Jesus speaking. This comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, listen. That was never said in the Old Testament. Jesus has always said, love your enemy. But what had happened was, is that as time had gone by, the religious uh, sect of Judaism had changed that from uh, loving your enemy to you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, so let me ask you a question. What, uh, what's more important, what has been said or what Jesus is saying? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, okay, anytime you see that phrase, so that in your Bible, you need to circle that, pay attention to it, highlight it. Why? Because that is the purpose clause. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, 
For he makes his son to rise on evil and good. What is he saying there? Even God cares for his enemies. Huh? Right? Sun rises on both good and evil. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Hey, by the way, if Jesus ever referred to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, that was not a compliment. All right? So what he's saying is, the worst of the worst in the minds of a Jew, a tax collector, you're, you're, you're in the same boat with him. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you What more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus differed dramatically from from his Jewish contemporaries by, listen, eradicating the limitations on the neighbor to be loved. What's Jesus doing? He is totally destroying the limitations of love. Jesus extended the obligation of neighbor to one's enemy, thus destroying the distinction between neighbor and enemy altogether. This, this, is, this is huge. This is radical. This is, this is culture-altering. On another occasion, a scribe asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was given by God. So look at, we're going to look at Mark 12, 28-31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In response, Jesus is citing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, concerning the nature of God and man's obligation to love God with his entire being. Of significance is that Jesus did not stop there, but link the second commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. So some scholars suggest that this, dyna- this dramatic and close association of love of God and love of neighbor originated with Jesus. If Jesus did first draw these commandments together, it reveals our Lord's own understanding of the relation of these two obligations. Now listen, proper love for neighbor derives from love for God. Did you hear what I said? Proper love for neighbor derives from Love of God. Notice the order of the commandments. Love God, love people. Not love people and thereby you'll be loving God. No, love God and you'll be able to love people. You cannot love people the way that God loves people if you do not love God first. It comes from, it comes from above, down, and then out. It does not come, it it is not parallel and then vertical. It is vertical, then parallel. The debate in Jesus' time was not over how to properly treat a neighbor, 
But who, in fact, was the neighbor? Jesus has asked this very question by an expert of the law. Look back at 1029, Luke 1029. I said, and I, told, I pointed this out to you, desiring to justify himself, Jesus said to Jesus, he said, who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus had given the lawyer a compliment for his clear understanding of what was required to inherit eternal life, namely, love of God and love of neighbor. That's how you know you're a Christian. Love of God, love of neighbor. It's one of the ways. Luke suggests that the lawyer asked the further qualifying question in order to justify himself. That is, to justify his actual behavior of limited, limited love towards his fellow man. See, that's what we do. We've got to be careful because we will take what God has said and then we will try to limit what he's saying through, justi through justification, through trying to justify our actions. Jesus chose not to respond directly. Jesus chose to respond directly by using a parable. Jesus needs to show the lawyer the short-sightedness of his question. So Jesus uses an everyday story of a man traveling the treacherous road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Uh, this road was plagued by robbers. The, travelers, uh, the traveler is robbed, stripped, beaten, and left for dead, according to verse 30. To this point, the lawyer might have assumed Jesus was offering an example of who constitutes a neighbor. A fellow Jew in need? Jesus proceeds, however, to introduce two figures, and Jesus turns the whole story on its head. So who does he introduce? A Levite and a priest. Right? Now, who's the man that's fallen, that's been attacked? It's a fellow Jew. So verse 31, Levite and a priest are introduced. These two guys definitely knew who the neighbor was. The lawyer would, ha would no doubt have anticipated such experts in the law to act rightly towards the victim. In contrast, the priest and the Levite, upon seeing the man in need, responded how? He passed by on the other side. These are men who knew what to do, but yet, just because you know what to do doesn't mean you always do what you're supposed to do. That's a good question for us to think about, right? Why don't I always do what I know I'm supposed to do? Now enter the Samaritan, a figure especially despised by the Jews, viewed as heretics by the Jewish religious authorities. The Samaritans were disqualified in rabbinic circles from being considered a neighbor and thus unworthy of love. While the lawyer listening to the parable would have expected the priest and the Levite to act justly towards the victim, he must have been surprised that, the hated, that a hated Samaritan would show compassion and thus fulfill the greatest commandment. Jesus intentionally spelled out the extent of the Samaritan's compassion how did he do that? He cared for the wound, uh, immediate care and uh, dressing the wound, transport to the end, care for the victim once at the end, extended care and paying 
for the care uh, while, while he was away. To such a degree, the lawyer would have no doubt, would have no doubt as to the genuineness of the Samaritan's love. The irony of the story is that the one not considered, listen, worthy to be called neighbor by Jews was precisely the one who showed himself to be a neighbor to the victim. All this reveals Jesus' definition of neighbor and what love of neighbor demands. What does it demand? Jesus sets no limitation on who qualifies as the neighbor commanded by God to love. The forcefulness and the power of Jesus' teaching on the love of neighbor and its relationship to one's love for God are demonstrated by a similar emphasis within the early church. Now watch this. Paul on two occasions called the love of neighbor the fulfillment of the entire law. Watch these verses on the screen. Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Watch this. For the one who loves another does what? Has fulfilled the law. Keep going. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a... <laughs> Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the... I mean, that's just that's plain, right? I mean, you don't even have to have any kind of theological background to understand that. All right, let's look at Galatians 5.14. If that's not enough, let's see if Paul said this anywhere else. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love it when Paul just makes it plain. So I want to introduce to you this morning a term it's not new, it shouldn't be. We don't use it a lot, but I introduced this term all the way back in 2015, so I'll reintroduce it to us this morning. The, the term is gospel neighboring. What is gospel neighboring? Here it is. To meet the concrete needs, the human needs, of all the people around you, whether they believe like you or not, How many people just get shelved by us because they don't believe like we believe? With such costliness and such sacrifice that people will need to hear the gospel just to try to make sense out of your life because you are so inexplicable. Now just leave that up on the screen, Mark. Hopefully everybody in this congregation is writing that definition down. That's, that's important. To live your life in such a way that people have to hear the gospel in order to understand why you are the way you are. If you want to aspire to accomplish something in 2020 because we're just a week away from people making all of their uh, annual New Year's resolutions. If you want to make a resolution, not just for 2020, but for the rest of your life, then make this your resolution. 
that you're going to live your life, your Christianity, as Jesus has told us to live it, in such a way, and if you live it like he says to live it, it will be in such a way that people will need to hear the gospel in order to understand why you are the way you are. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of y'all struggle to get into spiritual conversations with people? How many of y'all struggle just to get into a, I need to tell you about Jesus because I want you to know him conversation? Well, how about this? Just live out your faith, and what it will do is it will open up the door and the conversation because people will want to know why you live the way you do. And the only explanation of it is, is Christ and what he's done for you. second truth from this morning's text. Christmas requires our response. Christmas requires our our response. Feeding, sheltering, protecting the weak, liberating the oppressed. This is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. This is the essence of what it means to love my neighbor. In fact, Luke 10 is not the only place that this is talked about. Matthew 25, we won't read it all, but we will read the tail end of this very famous passage. Matthew 25, 42 through, 42 through 44, Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And Jesus says, when you did not do it unto the least of me, the least of these, you did not do it unto me. Depart. He says, depart. Depart where? Hell. Because Jesus says the only people that act that way are people that are going to hell. Now, don't get me wrong, just because you act that way doesn't mean you go into heaven. There's a lot of people who do a lot of good that aren't Christians. But what's confusing is when you get a lot of Christians who won't do these acts at all. Jesus has the audacity to say, to say here's how I know the difference between a person who is just, who just says they believe, and a person who actually has experienced grace. A life poured out in deeds of compassion and service, especially to the poor, is an inevitable sign that you've experienced salvation. That's pretty plain. It may come later, it may come sooner, but it will always come. Listen, <clears throat> a true Christian cannot and will not be left alone by God to live for themselves. No, don't get me wrong. There's always going to be selfishness that we struggle with. We're always going to fight the, the battle of selfishness. But here's the point. The point of it is, 
If you're not fighting the fight of selfishness because the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart saying, get in the battle, get in the fight, do good, help those who are in need. If that's not, if that's not a conflict within your heart, you're not a Christian. Listen, there's nothing that'll cause more conflict in your heart than when God starts messing with your time and your money. Huh? I mean, nothing will stir up people more. Nothing gets pastors in more trouble than when they start reading Jesus' words about money especially. But Jesus is serious about this. Truth number three, Christmas refutes our restrictions. This might be my second favorite point. The final point is my favorite this morning. But Christmas refutes our restrictions. Let's let's talk about this just for a moment. There are three ways in the passage in which Jesus refutes their restrictions. The first way we tend to restrict gospel neighboring is we try to limit the who. We try to limit the who. Isn't that what he asked? Well, who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is anybody in need, and anybody means anybody. George MacDonald said, The love of our neighbor is the only door out of the dungeon of self. Is anybody in here this morning just tired of you? Huh? Anybody in here tired of you? I'm not talking about anybody else tired of you. I'm talking about, is anybody tired of yourself? Does anybody look in the mirror and say, you know what? (laughs) Why am I not any better? (laughs) Why am I so selfish? I had to ask myself that question about five times yesterday. And I didn't like the answer either time. And God's just saying, here's the door out of the dungeon of self. And you know what we often do? We just take that door and close it and say, I think I'll just stay here a little longer. Why do we do that? We know how much misery it is. We know how bad it stinks down in the dungeon of self. And God keeps opening the door saying, come on out. It's it's so much better out here in the selfless part of the house, the castle. But if you want to stay down in the dungeon, I'll let you. But I'm going to keep opening the door and say, come on, let's go. Second, we, t- we, we tend to limit the when. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, a pastor in New England during the 1740s, preached a fascinating sermon called The Duty of Charity to the Poor. His sermon challenged his congregation, their excuses of why they would not help those in need. This this sermon was refreshing because sometimes in 2019, I think that we have 
issues within the church that are new, and then I read something from the 1740s and realize selfish church members ain't nothing new. They've been around since the 1740s. <clears throat> so here's excuse number one that his church members use. Now, look, I'm not doing this. All, I'm going to do two excuses. I think he had something like 15. He had written them all down. They are not truly poor. I, I only must help people when they are truly destitute and poor. So Edward's answer is something like this. Listen, this, is, this is genius. This guy was brilliant. He said, should we relieve our neighbors only in extreme destitution? That is not agreeable to the rule of loving our neighbor as ourselves. We get concerned about our situation long before we become destitute. We do something about our situation long before we become destitute. So you should love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you start caring about you only when it gets really, really bad? So we start caring about ourselves the first twins of difficulty that creeps into our life. We're not even talking about destitution. We're just talking about slight difficulty. And all of a sudden, we start caring about ourselves. Remember, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Number two. This is the last one that I'll use from him. But they brought on their trouble themselves. I don't have to help them when they brought it on themselves. Jonathan Edwards right, but Christ loved you, pitied you, and greatly laid himself out to relieve you from all that want and misery which you brought on yourself by your own foolishness. Should we not love others as Christ loved us? In other words, Edwards is saying, Jesus looked down from heaven and he said, I only want to help the deserving poor with my blood. He could have saved himself a trip because there isn't anybody down here who deserves that blood. We talked about it in life group. People say, well, I, I, didn't, I don't deserve that. I need to get what I deserve. You need, to, you need to strike that from your vocabulary. Because if God really ever answered that for you, if he ever gave you what you deserved, and how about this? How many of us have deserved a lot worse I'm not talking even about hell now. I'm just talking about stuff we've done in our life that deserved a greater punishment than what we have received from what we have done. How many of you, the seeds that you sown, the, you haven't reaped the full measure of what you've sown? Why not? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Oh, I'm not going to help them. They, they got there because they deserved it. I'm going to post a video on our Facebook page after church is over with. Everybody needs to go to church Facebook page. You need to watch the, I think it's four minutes long. It's a video. 
It was a social experiment that was done. And a guy walked over to a homeless man and asked the homeless man, told him this sad story about his family and all the problems they were having. And it was a difficult time and they needed money for uh, medical issues and da-da-da-da-da, on and on and on and on. And he asked the homeless guy, he said, is there, is there anything that you could do to help me? This guy doesn't know he's being filmed or anything. He, he has no idea what's going on. And the homeless man says, meet me here in one hour. And the guy said, meet you right here in one hour? He said, meet me back here in one hour. So you watch the video and they speed it up. And one hour later, the guy comes back with his bag that he left with over his shoulder. He comes back and the guy meets him there. And he he reaches into his bag and he pulls out this little brown bag. And he reaches inside the brown bag and he pulls out $140. And he said, I want you to have this $140 to help your family through their difficult time. Now, this leads me to the third way we try to limit. We try to limit how much. You see, the social experiment is this. Here's the truth from that, from that, from that video. Is that many of us will look at our own lives and we'll, we will think, you know what? I don't have anything to give. If you watch the rest of the video, the homeless man... When asked, well, what were you doing with this $140? He said, matter of fact, where did you get the $140? He said, well, I went back to the shelter that I stay at at night where the money was. That's where I got it from. He said, well, what what were you going to do with $140? He said, well, I've been saving it for the last seven months to try to get back on my feet. And he says, so you're going to give me all the money that you have that you were saving to get back on your feet to help me in my situation. What's the point, Brother Jason? The point of it is, (laughs) none of us are in a situation where we can't help. We limit, we tend to limit how much Edwards went on to say this. He said I, to his congregation, I can't afford to help people in need. And then he, he reads them Paul. And Paul says, bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6, 2, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Edwards went on to say, if our neighbor's difficulties and necessities are much greater than our own, we should be willing to suffer with him and take part of his own burden upon ourselves. In our neighbors, if our neighbors' difficulties and necessities are much greater than our own, we should be willing to suffer with him and take part of his burden upon ourselves. You see, that's the kind of living that makes people say, what? why do you live this way? When people say, I can't afford to give, what they mean is, I can't afford... To give to the poor or the needy without it burdening me or without it hurting my standard of living, without it really making me radically sacrifice. And listen, do you know why Jesus tells us to do this? 
to bear one another's burdens so that we can experience what it is like to be like Christ. You'll never be more like Jesus than when you help bear someone else's burden. When you begin to carry part of someone else's burden on yourself. There's no such thing as a person who can't afford to help. In fact, if you can't, if you can't afford to help, you're not helping enough. Let me make this last statement and then I'll give you the last truth for this morning. Jesus says, let me tell you the magnitude of what I'm calling my disciples to do. You are to help even people who ordinarily you would hate the sight of. You are to help people who have brought this on themselves. And you are to help them to the place where some of their burden falls on you. So that to some degree you experience some of their difficulty because you're giving that heavily. He says, that is what I called you to do. Don't you dare limit it. Here's the question. Here's the question I ask. <laughs> how do you do that? Because hmm? how many of y'all think you can live that way? I can't. I can't. Ain't no way. I can't live that way. Can you live that way? Is that just naturally wired into your DNA to live that way? There might be a few people in this world that's just hardwired that way, but I don't think it's most. So at least, at least to the last truth this morning, Christmas reveals our reason. It reveals to us our reason. And here's what it is. The first way, the, there, there's two ways you could try to get people to live this way. The first two, there's three, but the first two don't work. The first way is you try to get people to live like this through secular means. A secular person says that if you want to be a decent, decent, civic-minded person, you've got to care for the poor, right? And how do you care for the poor? Then you, you vote for politicians who have policies that promote the, the help of poor people, needy people, people that are suffering. A secular person will donate their time. They, they're, they're, they're big on volunteering. They're going to give of their time. They're going, to, they're going to give of their treasure. Now, that's what secular people do. Looks a lot like Christianity, okay? But the motivation is, I'm doing this, number one, because it makes me feel good, but the other part of it is it makes me look good, right? The, the second group is the religious group. And religion says you must give to the poor because your holy book commands it. Whatever, whatever holy book they ascribe to, most, most all religions, most all holy books, the Quran, the Bible, any of those that you want to read, will call their followers to a life of helping the poor. There is not one major religion in the world that doesn't put a lot of emphasis on helping the poor, so you have a religious and a secular version, but they both basically motivate you through guilt. You have so much and they have so little, don't you feel bad? Give it away. Notice in our parable, 
Jesus puts into this parable two people who are extremely moral and extremely religious, a priest and a Levite. It was their job to distribute the goods to the poor. He could have chosen some other kinds of people, a Pharisee or something, but the priest and the Levites, but he chose the priest and the Levites. What is Jesus trying to show us? Listen, he is showing the limitation of duty. He's showing the limitation of duty. Both the secular and the religious possess a limitation of help. Their belief can only carry them so far, and then they must pass by on the other side. Christianity calls its followers to radical gospel neighboring. Morality can take you, can make you somewhat generous. It can play on your emotions, but it does not change your heart. How many of you have ever had your emotions tinkered with when it comes to the poor, but ultimately it never changed your heart about the poor? Hmm? Stay with me. Let me ask you a quick question. Is there anybody here feeling guilty about their lack of involvement, their lack of generosity, their lack of concern for people in need around them? Is anybody in here feeling guilty about that? If you are, stop. Because it won't take you where Jesus wants you to go. Now follow me. Give me about three minutes here to finish this up. Jesus is not trying to make the lawyer feel guilty what does he want him to do? He wants him to feel grace. 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 Grace will change your heart. Guilt will not. The key to the parable is where Jesus has placed the Israelite inside the story. Jesus puts the Israelite in the road and the hated Samaritan on the horse. Here's the question he's asking the man. What if you were in the road? What if your life was ebbing out? What if you were bleeding to death? What if your only hope was an act of free grace to you from an enemy who doesn't owe you mercy? In fact, he owes you the opposite. What if your only hope was an act of free grace, an act of radical neighbor love for someone who is in no way owes you neighbor love at all? What if that was the situation? Would you want grace? Hey, guess what? <laughs> you know who you are in the story? You're not the good Samaritan. You're not. How many of y'all in here struggle to be a good Samaritan? That's right, you do. We all do. Because we ain't the good Samaritan. You are the person beaten to a pulp lying in the road. And the best neighbor that's ever lived just happens to be coming down the road that you're lying in. And he looks at you and he says, Oh, that's an enemy. That's my enemy laying there, right? Isn't that what Paul says? We're all enemies of God. Romans 5, 8, check it out. I didn't make it up. And while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. He comes walking by and he could say, oh, there's an enemy of mine. I got the right to cruise on by. But Jesus says, no, I am the perfect neighbor. And what the perfect neighbor does is that he comes down. And guess what? He doesn't walk on the other side. He walks to us. 
and, 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 the, and the neighbor who owes no debt takes the person who owes a debt and puts them on his horse and takes him to the inn and bandages up his wounds and says to the innkeeper, here's enough money, and if there's more, if the debt grows greater, then I'll come back and pay the rest of the debt. Jesus in the Good Samaritan is not giving us something to do. He's telling us that there's something that's been done. You see, Jesus isn't saying this to us. He's not saying, look, you go out and do this. He is saying to us, this is who you are. This is what's done to you. And now, he, he, listen, when you experience radical, crazy love, grace of God, he doesn't have to tell you to get up and go do likewise. You get up and go do likewise because of what you've experienced. There's no other response to that, right? The, the, look, the answer is no, there's no other response. You were dead, depraved, and doomed. You were laying in the road on your way to hell. And the grace of God came by. And instead of God passing by on the other side, He came to where you were. And He showered you with grace. And He showered you with love. And because of that, you are now whole. You have now been brought from death to life. And the response to that is, you will love God, and because you love Him, because of what He's done for you, remember what the Bible says? We love Him because He... That's why you love Him. Because He loved you. And now because He's loved you with this radical, crazy grace, only thing that you can do is love other people who are just like you were with the same love that He loved you with. You can't do it. But he can. And if he, lives, if he lives inside of you, you got everything you need inside of you to love like he loves. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's a slow process. It's a difficult process. It doesn't always show up as often as we would like. It doesn't show up to the degree that we would like. But let me tell you something this morning. It is there. And if you are a follower of Christ, it's got to show up and it's got to show out. It may be a little dim 10-watt light bulb. I got this new gadget at my house where I can, on my Alexa, I can, I can change the lighting in my house. And it's got like, it's called relax lighting. And it's just real dim. I mean, I mean it's relaxing. It's almost dark in there. Just enough light for the light to be on. And then I've got one that's called concentration, and it's like the sun is on inside the house. It's just bright. Listen, and as I was thinking about this sermon, I thought, you know what? That's kind of where I am right now. I'm kind of that little dim bulb. I mean, you can see some, some Jesus in me, you know? It's there. You know it's there. You see it's there, but it's not near what it should be and near what I want it to be.
So you know what I'm asking God to do? God, just, just turn it up. Turn it up. That's a dangerous prayer to end with this morning. You know why? Because if he turns it up, he's turning something over. <laughs> he can't turn it up without turning it over. <laughs> You're right, something's got to go. In order for us to be who he wants us to be, to get us to where he wants us to get us, he's got to do something radical to get us there. Because look, you can't live like that without something radically happening. But I'm telling you, if you're a believer in Christ, there, there should be something in your life that resonates and says, you know what? I really don't want to go through what I got to go through to get there, but that's where I want to go. Because I know that's where you're going to take me. And that's what Christmas is all about. We live in a sin-sick world. We live in a world that needs the love of Christ. And Christ is not here. But he is. He lives in each one of us. And we get the opportunity to take that crazy radical love into this world and give it to people who don't deserve it because we who didn't deserve it have been given it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven this morning, as we come to a close of this service, I look out and, Father, I, I could almost recite every testimony of every person in this